Would you all pray with me? Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have gathered us here today by the power of your spirit, and we ask that you would send us out according to your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I can go ahead and be seated. You know, one thing to note on a day like today is the intentional and I'd say sort of delicious irony that the one day where Christians mark themselves off as different than the rest of the world, ashes on our foreheads for all of our cities to see, is also the day where we question what it is that sets Christians apart. And if you've been in the church for long, not that long at all, in fact, but if you have continued in the faith for, for long enough to feel somewhat comfortable or at home in the church, one of the questions that you will come to ask by hook or crook is, how different should we, the church, the people of God, look from the rest of the world? That is, given that Jesus is the perfect image of what it looks like to be morally upright before God, shouldn't we, all of his followers, also stand out just as he did? Of course, the reason that this is such a genuinely interesting and good question is because we so often do not look any different from the rest of the world. One, of course, thinks about plenty of examples of Christians standing out. The one that comes to mind for me is the Le Chambon community in France during the time of World War II. It was an entire town that illegally sheltered thousands of Jews fleeing Germany. And they did this, of course, at the risk of their own lives, but also they did this being led by a pastor, a man who was apparently not especially gifted at preaching or teaching, but was remarkable simply because he lived as a Christian. And thereby all of the whole town stood out. They were Christians and the world could see. But it should haunt us, using that same example, that the men who hunted down the Jewish refugees that they tried to hide were, in fact, all baptized. You do realize that. All of them were baptized. Some of them were very intentional Christians, those Germans, who prayed. They went to church. They tried to raise their children in the faith. They thought they were doing right. Of course, incredibly misguided. But even still, the question should hang over us. What should a Christian look like? What should set the church apart? In our reading from Joel, if you're paying attention, you'll notice that he asks the very same question. He says, Spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your heritage a mockery. Do not make us a byword among the nations. Why should the people say, Where is their God? In other words, he says, Do you really want us to look like fools in front of the entire world? And it's a good question to ask from Joel. Even with all of their moral corruption, well known, it's why they were punished in the first place. You have to remember that Israel had been intended from the very beginning to be a blessing to the world. That was the whole point of their existence. They had been a people who had come from nothing, a nomadic tribe from who knows where, eventually delivered out of slavery from Egypt. Given a land and a position of stature before the world, they were noticed, seen. 
And God had even promised, again, his words in Genesis 12, 22, I will make your people great, many. I will also make your name great. People will know about you. They'll hear of your goodness. You will be distinct among the nations of the world. But if we read through the prophets, you'll see that Israel's reputation is, in fact, not spared. She is humiliated before all of the nations of the world. In fact, she becomes more of a non-nation than a nation. Everything has come apart. And when Babylon tramples over her cities, takes her into exile, the image that is used is that Israel is swallowed up by the world. Swallowed up. And so I'd ask you, set aside the why of this scenario for a minute. Why would Israel be swallowed up by the rest of the world? And just return again to our original question. What sets us apart? Have we, in fact, been swallowed up by the rest of the world? What would it mean if we are, in fact, indistinguishable from the nations of the earth? I think if we read through scripture, the answer is evident. As with Old Testament Israel, so also with the church. There are times, of course, that we do get used as icons of hope and goodness for the rest of the world, but even yet we are still sinners just like everyone else. And I would just like to take a moment to point out that this is a very common thing to note in our current cultural climate. It is no strange thing to note or uncover or point out the vast sins of the church. And whatever you think about that, whether it makes you comfortable or uncomfortable, how could it make you comfortable necessarily? Whatever you think about that, if Joel and the rest of the minor prophets are of any value to us, we see that the least helpful thing that any of us can do is to point the finger or to explain away, or to debate, or to share blame elsewhere. Rather, the only helpful response for a sinful people in a broken world is to simply be honest and repent. <laughs> it's that easy. Reminds me, I was walking across the street one day, I was wearing my clerical collar, as I do every day, basically. A guy in a car driving by mistook me for a Catholic priest, and he stopped the car in the middle of the road, rolled down the window, and yelled out something at me that I will never forget and that I will never be able to say in a pulpit in a church. <laughs> you can imagine what it might have been. But of course, the one thing I could not do was say, excuse me, if you looked a little closer, you'd see that my collar looks slightly different than a Roman collar, and I am not, in fact, Roman Catholic. You can also see that I'm married. The guy couldn't have cared less. Of course not. And in a way, it is right that all of us Christians are lumped together. Even though we have all of our singular histories and stories and narratives and flaws and sins, our mistakes and our failures should not be explained away in the face of the world. Because they are ours. And so in that moment when the window was rolled down and the man was screaming into my face, I didn't even have the time to say I'm sorry, but stood rightly condemned. 
Not Roman, and yet Roman. I longed to say I was sorry. But you see, our mistakes and failures, they should never be explained away because as Christians, one of the things that does set us apart is that we believe grace is in fact real. I ask you, what would it look like to believe that grace is real and to say we are sorry? What might it look like to repent before the nations? Even if some of the condemnations are wrong, what would it look like to trust in grace so much that we could say we're sorry? That would stand out. In any case, I return to my question, how should the church look different? What should we do? What should you do when we are like Israel, swallowed up by the rest of the world? And I'd say aside from apologizing, which non-Christians can do, the one thing that Christians can do that no one else in the world can do is to be taught by God. It's to be taught by God. It's to willingly come under God's correction to say, I have done wrong, I am the one responsible for my sins, and now God, teach me your ways. Instruct me in the ways of wisdom. You see, in a way, it is just like sacrifice. Very common Christian word. A sacrifice is a surrender in some ways to God's own work. It's giving him yourself in order that he can use you in whatever way he sees fit. It's even, in fact, limiting oneself so that it is immediately evident that anything done is on God's own terms, not yours. And so I believe that to be continually taught by God, that is in fact something truly remarkable. That is something you can do all the time. It's something that we can do together. It's something you can do as an individual. And it is in a way to be utterly set apart because even at your worst, even at your worst, you can still be taught. I can still be taught. We can still be taught. And so we might not look different, but when the rest of the world, I think, is in irons, stuck, maybe at their best repenting again and again and again, we, the church, can say, God, teach us. You're the only one who can offer genuine instruction. You are the only source of life. You are the only one who can correct us again and again and again. So show us your ways. And I hope you see how special this posture is. Because it is not simply a learning attitude. It is, in fact, deep, deep within the core of the Christian tradition. It is the act of the Holy Spirit. If you look way back in Christian history, all the way to the very end of the fourth century, there is this one very fascinating debate if you're sort of nerdy like me. And it's about the status of the Holy Spirit. They went back and forth on this issue. Many of them knew that Jesus was fully God and fully human, but some doubted if the person of the Holy Spirit was actually God himself. In other words, why would we need three fully divine persons? It was a huge thing. Lots, lot, and lots of ink spilled. But what they realized is, that, is this, if, if God is in heaven and Jesus has ascended to establish our place with God the Father, then holiness, holiness meaning the genuine preparation for being in God's presence, that is taking on God's actual 
qualities and characteristics, they realized that that could not be given to us by other human beings. In other words, holiness, it cannot be created by creatures because it is at its root about God. It's not ours. And so they thought whoever or whatever was giving holiness to the church here and there in small pockets of renewal and life, acts of genuine sacrifice and worship, giving themselves over to the work of God in the world, whatever that was, must also be God. Basil the Great, one of the greatest thinkers of the early Christian world, said, anything that needs holiness must turn to the Spirit. I'll say that again. Anything that needs holiness must turn to the Spirit. In other words, your holiness will come from nowhere else. He saw that Israel was instructed by God. The apostles were instructed by Jesus Christ. And thereby, the church must be instructed by the Holy Spirit. And so at the very beginning of this Lenten season, my plea for all of you is quite simple. I would encourage all of us to be instructed by the Holy Spirit. Be instructed by the Spirit. I, of course, have no idea what you need to learn. I'm not even sure exactly what the church needs to learn, though I have plenty of ideas. But that's just the thing, don't you see? Because to pursue answers to our problems and our sins without God, that is to do exactly that one problem that our forefathers saw in the first place. Because they knew that holiness must come from God, not our own ingenuity, not our own logic, not our own efforts, but by our sheer nothingness, turning to God for his instruction. Holiness must come from God, otherwise it isn't real in the first place. And so practically speaking, what this means for you this Lent is also fairly simple. Whatever you learn, and again, I don't know what that might be, but whatever you learn, it will, I guarantee you, begin by spending time with God. By spending time with God. It's that simple. I'd encourage you, set a timer. Go through the daily office. Come to a morning Eucharist. We have them every day. Use the devotional material that we have mailed to your mailbox. Doesn't really matter. But spend time with God's Spirit and be instructed by Him. Doing this will not eradicate all of your sins. It won't eliminate your pain. But I will guarantee you this. What it will do is one thing that nothing in no one else in the world can do, and that's be taught by God's Spirit. Jesus says in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. And so I want you to see that this giving of the Holy Spirit as our instructor is a great hope in this Lenten season. Because you see, to live as a Christian, to live as a Christian, it is not to be different. Quit. To live as a Christian is not to be different. It is simply to live as if we have a Heavenly Father who has loved us so much that He would not leave us comfortless, but has sent His Spirit to instruct us again and again and again. This Lent, turn to Him and open your heart to His work. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.